Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today I am going to have a conversation about what kind of church should you belong to? How do you even look for a good church? What kind of attributes, features, people in those churches should you look for? It just so happens that Libertarian Christian Institute gets a lot of emails from people saying, how do I find a church? And, you know, I offer some of my own thoughts on that. But Chuck Gutenson, who is here with me today, is the guy I want everyone to hear what he has to say. And part of that is that he actually wrote a book called Church Worth Getting Up For. And so, Chuck, I'm really glad that you're here with me today. You have had an eclectic career. You've been a manager in a Fortune 500 company. You're a professor of systematic theology at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. You've been the COO in for-profit and not-for-profit sectors. So you have quite the... uh, quite the resume here. And you are probably one of the smartest people I like to argue with. Well, you're a very kind uh, host. So we're, we're not going to actually argue here on this episode. Um, if, if our listeners want to see us argue, they can friend us both on Facebook and see our banterings back and forth. But uh, it just so happens that this is one of those topics where we probably largely agree. And you're one of the people I really respect uh, on this topic. So we'll talk a little bit here near the end about, you know, political aspects of choosing a church and how how politically relevant to your beliefs your church has to be. But I don't happen to feel personally that whether or not the church you go to politically aligns with what a libertarian or what any particular Christian thinks of politically is necessarily like the first thing we should do. And their reasons for wanting to choose a church should probably be more guided by what is biblical rather than something that's a little bit more I would say, contemporary issues and so forth. What do you think? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I start to uh, think about what church I should go to, the kinds of questions I ask myself are, how diverse is this congregation? You know, do we have uh, some racial diversity? Um, How diverse is it socioeconomically? Now, those aren't the first questions I ask, but because you and I talk about that kind of stuff a lot, those are the kinds of things that come yeah. to mind first. Obviously, whether or not their preaching is biblically sound, and of course you have to put that phrase biblically sound in a bit of, uh, you know, scare quotes just a little bit, because uh, if I'm a Catholic, what I think is biblically sound, or if I'm a, a Reformed church guy, or if I'm a Lutheran, those are going to probably mean slightly different things. So within your tradition, you know, you want somebody who's uh, the preaching and teaching has good, solid connection to Scripture. I don't mean any particular hermeneutic of Scripture, but at least that they're trying to appropriate Scripture, seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance in both being able to proclaim the Word and enabling people to hear what God wants to say to them. I think those are things that uh, we need to look for. The thing I think we have to be careful about, you know, I'm sort of on the fence. That's not even the right way to say it. I'm sort of on, I feel strongly both ways is probably a better way to say it. Mm When it comes to, uh, you know, I'm a United Methodist. I have, I grew up as a um, Southern Baptist, and at 20, 
four, three, two, somewhere along there, I got married. I had had a few years of uh, wandering in the wilderness. And after we got married, my wife and I said, well, we need to get back into church. And so because I'd grown up Southern Baptist, we started going to Southern Baptist churches. And the same discontent I had with certain aspects of Southern Baptist uh, doctrine bothered me again. And so my wife said, well, why don't we just try the Methodist church, which is the church I grew up in. And so we tried that. And I, it was like going home first day I was there. Somebody asked me later if it was hard to switch from being a Baptist to being a Methodist. And I said, no, I happen to always be a Wesleyan. You know, I happen to be a, a guy who believed like the founder of Methodism. I just didn't know it until I went to a Methodist church. Uh, but now I also have to say that during the first oh, seven or eight years of our marriage, we, uh, through a interesting series of circumstances, lived in a variety of different places, and we got exposed to a number of different traditions. So we spent about a year going to the Lutheran Church, largely up in the Minnesota area. We spent probably a year in the, or two in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We spent um, oh, about that amount of time in a Disciples of Christ Church, uh, about that amount of time in an Anglican Church. And my wife and I had this habit of going to Catholic churches when we were traveling just because we wanted to hear what our Catholic brothers and sisters had to say. So on the one hand, I want to say, you know, you will probably want to locate a church that is comfortable for you as far as the central doctrines that you're committed to. But at the same time, I want to affirm the kind of exploring of different traditions that my wife and I did in the first several years of our marriage, because now I don't so much think about these things just as a narrow-minded Methodist. But I think when I think of uh, Wesley, for example, as the founder of Methodism, I can see, I often say to students when I'm teaching Wesley's theology, Wesley did a brilliant job of uniting certain pieces of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation from Catholicism, from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and from the Protestant tradition. And if I hadn't had the exposure to those different traditions, I don't think I would have been able to appreciate that as deeply mm. As I do, and it makes me, I'm, I'm more likely to see the strengths in other traditions than the weaknesses, even though, of course, we all have our uh, critiques of our own as well as other traditions. So what do you look for? You know, you started me off with that question. What do you look for? I think ultimately you're going to end up in a tradition that you're comfortable with, you know, that you've kind of struggled through the doctrinal claims, you've studied scripture, you've thought and prayed about it, you've interacted with friends and you sort of come to a, a reasonably settled position about where you believe you are theologically. And I think that there's nothing wrong then with locating yourself in that tradition. What I would worry about is if we grew up in extradition and we matured in the extradition and we have always gone to the extradition and we just don't, we're ignorant in, the, in a positive sense of it. I don't mean that as criticism. We're just ignorant of the contributions that our sisters and brothers and other traditions have to make. So if you've ne if a person has never done that, if they've never gone to a number of different traditions to get experience, I would encourage them to consider a way to do that. Even if you're firmly committed to a particular church, I think exploring the other traditions and trying to understand better what they bring to the rich tapestry that constitutes Christian theology, the more we can understand that, the better off we are. Yeah, I... You know, I, I want to get to the question on the, the whole doctrine thing here in a minute. But, you know, my experience growing up was I lived in a really small town of around a thousand people and in the town, not the church, the town. And the church that I went to was pretty much the only church my parents considered. And now I didn't have any opportunity to go to any other churches other than maybe 
months with a friend or whatever. But, you know, as I got older and was able to sort of pick and choose the kind of church that I would attend, I didn't stray very far. I mean, oh my goodness, that eclectic list of uh, denominations you just mentioned, I was like, and I kind of wish that when I was in my 20s, I could have done that. And, and to some extent, now I'm thinking about it, I probably could have, but I didn't. And there was a sense in which I have always been against church shopping. Yes. Yeah. And now you had a series of circumstances that sounded like that was just happened to be a really good opportunity for you to yeah. taste of the different. I, I, often, I actually do call them flavors to use a different metaphor from denomination or whatever. Yep. Uh, but, you know, to, to kind of get a taste of all the different flavors of Christianity. And so my my I wouldn't say a concern about what you said, but how do you avoid being a church consumer? Because that just seems a little I don't know. It just doesn't seem as reverent to think about churches. And and for that matter, and we, you know, you have sometimes people are dissatisfied with the church they're in. It could be that they've grown beyond what the churches change. You know, churches tend to stay stagnant and they don't change and evolve as much. And individuals get to read theologies and adapt and morph and all of that. And we like, well, this just doesn't fit me anymore. I should leave. And then that isn't necessarily a good choice either. Right. So how do you how do you avoid the whole church shopping and then just sort of like abandon just because you've moved on in your own personal theology or whatever? Well, I think that behind all of our thinking about where we should be going to church, there has to be some level of of willing to submit ourselves to authority, to authority of Scripture, to authority of God as the author of Scripture and the author of our salvation. And to a certain extent, ultimately to be able to submit ourselves to the authority of the particular church in which we um, decide to associate ourselves. I think the strongest antidote to the church shopping mentality is awareness of the extent to which that happens and the ease with which we will search for traditions that will affirm us in the things that we already believe. A lot of times when we say, you know, you hear this criticism, well, the church I'm going to, I'm just, I'm just not getting fed there. I think a lot of times what the, if you really could do the Vulcan mind mail thing, right, and, and understand what the real motivations were there, I think a lot of times it's motivation is I'm not hearing what I want to hear, right? I mean, so the, yeah. we have to be willing to recognize that by submitting ourselves to the authority of God, we have to be open to recognizing that some of the things that we probably have held as dear our whole lives long are wrong. And we have to be open to hearing them from other traditions. Now, the way this worked out for my wife and I, just kind of an interesting uh, confluence of events that put us in these different churches. And I don't think in any particular case did we consider ourselves church shopping as much as, you know, we wanted to worship. We plugged into this location. We felt good. This was a tradition we didn't understand. So we wanted to learn as much as we could. And I think before we really were settled in a particular denomination, we were probably 30 or a little beyond. So, yeah, I think I think being awareness and trying to intentionally resist the whole notion of church shopping and recognizing that when we go shopping for something, we generally go shopping for something that we like. And when we go selecting churches, we, we need to think in terms of how will I locate myself in a tradition wherein God can form me, even if he forms me in ways I'd really rather not be formed. Yeah. How do you, how do you have a self-awareness of that? Like last, was it two weekends ago or so my church had a congregational meeting and every time they, they add new members, everybody stands up and repeats this, uh, 
statement of kind of agreement that we will be you know, kind of somewhat loosely bound to each other and, you know, confront one another, those kinds of things, and that we will submit to the authority of the church if we stray. And how, how I mean, there's no teeth to that when you could just leave the church and just be right. like, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave my E-free church and I'm going to go to my Baptist church or I'm going to go right. to the Methodist yep. church down the road because, you know, they agree with my theology and, or whatever. Ultimately, there, uh, other than a continual attempt to let God be heard in our lives, you know, to listen attentively and be willing to hear things we may not want to hear, I don't know what the answer to that question. There was a, yeah. I often quote this thing from, it's not an exact quote, but in one of Hirewas's books, I don't even recall which one it is now, he made some comment like this. It, it's, um, with every victory that our side wins, we stand affirmed that we are on God's side. In every loss that we suffer, we repent that we have not yet purified ourselves enough to gain God's favor in this particular case. What never seems to occur to us is that we might be not in the path God wants us to be on at all. And maybe what we need is a major repentance of the direction in which we're going. Mm. And I say that to say, that it's very easy to allow the words of our own tradition to become almost a siren song in our ears to keep us moving along in the right direction. And any condemnation we might hear from them as condemnation that we might rightly, that we ought rightly to hear. I mean, this is the difficult balance. When I talked about submitting ourselves to the authority, obviously to God, ultimately to God's word, as that's how God has communicated to us, and then through the church. There has to be a place in there to say, yeah, but you know, the church that I'm in is really corrupt and I have to speak back to it. And that, I think, is the single hardest. The only way I think we can do that with even a grain of integrity is if we can say something like Luther when he said, you know, when they wanted him to back down on the things he was saying against the Catholic Church, he said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Right? It's a sort of I can't help but say what I'm saying. And if I'm wrong, may God have mercy on me, yeah. you know, and help me to see it. Uh, but I think it's just, you know, we like to feel safe. We like to be in crowds that think the way that we think. And what uh, I think that we need more than we realize is to be parts of communities that don't think like we do so that they challenge us to see things in different ways. I remember having a conversation. The subject of it isn't important, but I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and he had a particular kind of critique of this particular position. And I said, well, you know, I understand why you could feel that way, but let me give you another way of looking at it. And, after, you know, about five minutes later, he looked at me and said, nobody has ever said that to me before, right? I mean, it's like he didn't run in circles that could offer to him the sort of correction to his view that I was trying to offer. And when he heard it, he was very open to hearing it and pondering it. But, you know, if we if we go to churches that are, you know, we're all lockstep agreement on everything. I don't know how we ever discover the errors that we have. And certainly every single one of us has plenty. <laughs> yeah, we certainly do. You know, one of the things that I wrestle with is that belonging and aligning with the church community that, you, that you're that you in. And, and I don't necessarily mean the leadership only, but also the people that you worship with and the people that you go to Sunday school with, the people that you serve with. 
I have found myself in churches before where I don't agree with leadership on, say, theological positions, but the practice and the people and the habits and the ways in which we worship and all those kinds of like things that are beyond the preaching and just strict theology stuff are more meaningful and personal. And so we stay and we say, you know what? I don't have to agree with the pastor on all bits of theology. And I might even strongly disagree on certain things as opposed to, oh, I'd put it this way and he's a little off track and I'm right on track or something like that. So the, the whole like theology versus, I guess they call it praxeology. I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts on like, is it more important to find the church that believes all the right things or checks all, you know, like 95% of the boxes that you want? And, you know, you're okay if it's not, you know, it's kind of like buying a house, right? Like you're going to have to trade off something when you buy a new house. You're not going to get everything you want. And so you got to decide what you're going to compromise on. But where is that in the doctrine versus practice? That's a really good question. You know, that's um, sometimes people try to put those two things into, uh, you know, a very strong tension with each other. What I like to say, so let me start off answering a slightly different question than you ask and then kind of see if we can work our way back into it. When people talk about the distinctions between doctrine and praxis, I often say that rightly understood, those two things are flip sides of the same coin. One of the reasonable evidences that our doctrine is reasonably sound is if our practices are reasonably sound and vice versa, right? I mean, those things should be very tightly connected. Now, I was talking with um, Al Hirsch once and uh we were talking about the state of the church. In fact, it might have been for my uh, Church Worth Getting Up For book that, that he and I were visiting. I, I can't remember. But I know that he, he made this comment at one point. He said, you know, in the early church days, Paul would wander into a city. He'd preach. He'd get a few people who wanted to be followers of Jesus. And before you know it, he kind of said, okay, y'all are a church. And off he would go somewhere else. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of scripture to hand on to them. There certainly wasn't any early church theology done yet at that particular point. And, you know, Paul seemed to think that the Holy Spirit would somehow, within that mix of people, keep them on the path and help them to become a people who embody the life of Christ in the world. That was his way of suggesting that sometimes we focus so narrowly on doctrine and let those doctrinal claims separate us so easily Uh, perhaps much more easily than we should let them separate us. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, is it does at the end of the day, the reason I ended up at the evangelical Presbyterian church that I attended for a couple of years wasn't because I believed in a doctrine of predestination. It wasn't because I was Calvinist or agreed with. I mean, I remember a sermon on the Eucharist that just thoroughly left me perplexed. Uh, It was because they knew how to have small groups and they knew how to, put those things together in a way that bonded families together in a way that they could support each other. So I was willing to, you know, shrug my shoulders at uh, quite a lot of doctrinal points that uh, I didn't feel like I had to argue with them about because they did so well in establishing the sort of communal uh, relationships on a small scale that needed to be established for families and followers of Jesus to be able to succeed. When I went to the Church of Disciples of Christ, uh, it was, again, a sort of a, the sense of community that I had with people there, uh, even though I knew in that case there were some doctrinal issues that I would disagree with. So I think what I'm trying to say is I think our overattention to being narrowly in alignment with other folks on 
doctrine can sometimes be overdone to the detriment of our proper focus on our communal life together as a community, as well as the way in which that community reaches out to the folks around them. Let me stop there for a minute and see if that's making sense to you. Yeah, it it does. And I, I think that it's sort of what I found in my situation as well. It's like there's a whole lot to gain and doctrine can unite for one thing, but it, it unites us intellectually in a lot of ways. And so I guess my, my thoughts on that would be if the community itself is life-giving, the doctrine is going to be supporting that, but it's not. it may not be the preeminent thing. Yes. And here's how I think I would say that. I'm just trying to think as you were talking. Over the years, as we went to these different churches, I think the, the doctrinal unity that gave me comfort was that we all recited the same creed, right? The Creed of Constantinople 381, sometimes we call it the Nicene Creed, sometimes we call it something else. But anyway, the fact that at that level of doctrine, we were in agreement, you know, then if we had differences about, you know, the Catholics have one view of scripture, Protestants have another view of scripture. Within Protestantism, there's a whole slew of different views on it. Um, As my doctoral mentor used to say, uh, the early church agreed that scripture was inspired, but it never went into much detail about how that inspiration occurred. Uh, You know, now we got all kinds of flavors of Protestants who argue over how that inspiration occurred. Well, as long as we're in unity on the big things, as long as we can sit together and recite the uh, Creed of Constantinople together, then I'm that's probably close enough for me. Yeah, that's where I've personally landed. In fact, you know, the the Facebook group that the Libertarian Christian Institute has sort of uh, in in our page is sort of basically agreed that, you know, we're going to call Christian the people who affirm the Nicene Creed, basically. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the broadest we can feel we can go. We're not going to penalize you for being a Calvinist or a Catholic or whatever. We're not going to make arguments against those types of doctrines, even though from, you know, from us, we, we hail from various different places. You know, I can imagine someone listening to this part of the conversation and we're about halfway through our conversation here and thinking, this is a lot of work. This is, a, this is too complicated. This is too exhausting, especially for introverts like me. I don't want to find a church. So, you know, one thing we didn't establish here in this conversation yet is how important is it to choose a local church? Because, you know, I can just listen to stuff on the internet and I can join Facebook groups and, and chat with people and, and stuff. So, I mean, how important is the local church? Well, I happen to be a um, high ecclesiology sort of guy. That is to say, I think that the authority of the church and functioning within the church is an important thing. Uh, In a minute or two, perhaps we can talk about some exceptions to that, but as a general rule, we need to remember that uh, we are created in the image of God who is first and foremost three persons and one substance, right? I mean, it's a triune God. It's a community of God. If you sweep, what the doctrine of Trinity says is if you sweep away down to the bedrock of reality, what you get are three persons in loving relationship. And so God's created us in his image, that is in the image of this Trinitarian God, which means that we are created for community as well. And so the local church is the place where we say that the spirit calls us together to serve, worship, and enjoy community together. So I don't think, I don't think we should easily push that participation in that particular body aside. I lived in a a rather large metropolitan area and I had visited numerous churches around there. In fact, the book, my book's title, Church Worth Getting Up For, arose from 
visiting a number of churches over a number of weeks and leaning over to my wife on more than one occasion and saying, can you tell me why, if I weren't already a Christian, I would get up and come to this? Uh, you know, what is it that would attract me to it otherwise? So I recognize that there's a lot about church that is can be boring and frustrating, but I do believe that's, that we are called to be the people of God, and somehow we have to figure out how to be that people of God. Now, I considered, we didn't ever actually do this, because we did find some place we could attend. But there was a, a period of time that my wife and I had considered the place that I worked there had a um, large conference room with big TV and all that. And I have a friend who has was the pastor at a big Methodist church in uh, Ohio. And we were going to come together, watch that sermon. I mean, it, it was broadcast. We were going to watch that online and then when the sermon was over, we were going to break up into groups there and pray or discuss or whatever, and then go out and have lunch together. So you could say on one level, we wouldn't have been participating in a, quote, local church, but we would been, have been taking the best of technology to permit us to construct our own little church, if you will. So I don't, I'm not resistant to uh, extreme cases where folks might need to form their own communities. What I am resistant to is the pretense that somehow we can be full-orbed followers of Jesus if we do that sort of on our own. Yeah. Well, you're sort of subcontracting the preacher, but doing community on your own. Exactly. Good way to yeah. put it. Yeah. Hang on here. Let me look at my notes. Um, but while you're looking, I just I wanted to comment on your the thing you said a minute ago about, well, that's hard work. Uh, you know, well, I don't want to really want to do all of that. Well, I mean, I suppose at some point what I would say to anyone who said that is, well, just how serious a follower of Jesus do you want to be? We like to talk about the free gift of salvation, but too easily we end up in what uh, Bonhoeffer called easy salvation, right? Cheap grace, mm-hmm. yeah. easy to describe it. We have to remember that ultimately following Jesus is intended to cost us everything. And so if we have to exert a little bit of energy to find the right place to be so that God's spirit can work with us and form us into the people God's called us to be. Uh, well, you know, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, and it may not be, it may not be easy uh, because those things which are worth having aren't going to come cheap. That's right. Obviously we can, we can squabble over whether or not that's true in certain circumstances, but in terms of life principles, that's certainly true. You know, one of the things that doesn't, doesn't come easily, at least, is something like authenticity. And uh, I think I would wonder if a lot of people listening who either, even if they have a church, whether they're looking for a church or whether they already have one, is that they struggle to find a place where they can be authentic. And usually, it's been my experience that you can be more authentic in the context of more small groups where you've built rapport with people and, you know, that authenticity happens over time. And, you know, obviously you can be authentic with yourself, but that doesn't, that just ignores the community aspect of it. <laughs> um, so, you know, may, maybe speaking to authenticity might be a good good thing here. Well, they, uh, there's a book that I sometimes use in one of the courses I teach. It's written by uh, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyon. I think Gabe contracted with Dave to do the book or something like that. But anyway, it's called Unchristian. And they identify the... Uh, what are, what are the things that people most associate when they hear the word Christian church, what do they think of? And this, I don't know if I remember all six of them, but they were something like um, hypocritical, 
too political, anti-gay, yeah. judgmental, uh, anti-science, perhaps, or something like that, and shelter. Yeah. So those were the things that they named. And authenticity was in that mix of things. What people want is a place where they can be authentic. And I think one of the, I mean, this is where I think when the church tries to present itself as having all the answers, that's when we turn people off who want authenticity. I don't think a pastor hands up, needs to stand up. I mean, there was this old uh, Saturday Night Live skit many, many, many years ago where they were making fun of somebody who was uh, repenting of their sins, right? And they were saying, oh, Lord, I was once a wanton sinner. And when he said wanton sinner, you know, the crowd, amen. And he could tell that they liked that. And he goes, in fact, when I was a wanton sinner, I did thus and so, you know, and then they cheered even louder. So it was like <laughs> we, were, we were reveling in our own sinfulness, right? So it, it's easy to have the kind of authenticity where we start to brag about our sinfulness. But I think people just, I mean, I think if people came into our churches and we simply said, you know, we're sinners like you are, we've committed ourselves to Jesus and we think that's that's what brings salvation to us. And we'd like to talk to you about how you could share that with you. But if you get the impression that somehow we think we got it all together and you don't, uh, that wouldn't be a right way to view things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in other words, if we would just be honest about our own brokenness, rather than feeling the need to sort of put on this pretense of holiness. I mean, every time, I mean, when we do that, we inevitably are somewhere along the way going to make a mistake. And that is what people look for, frankly. Right. I mean, I suspect you and I do that too. Right. If we hear somebody who's really trying to set themselves up as a moral exemplar, we're more on the lookout for what kind of mistakes they might make. We as Christians just need to say, you know, we're broken like the rest of you, uh, but come on in and let's see if we can't talk about what that looks like and what we might do about it, how we might live together and so on. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, if, if someone recognizes that the the experiences and community of church that they're in don't allow for that authenticity because they feel easily judged or evaluated even and to leave it less, uh, you know, judgment, judgment is, is a big term, but you know, evaluated and on on stage when they're with people and they realize, wow, there's no authenticity here. And I feel like I have to put on a show or whatever, you know, I would probably suggest to them, you know, maybe maybe you're doing the same thing. And if there's an opportunity to let people be themselves and demonstrate that they can be vulnerable with you, then it might turn things around. So, I mean, it, you know, we can only we can only make other people change so much. And part of that is to change ourselves first. Right. And, and there's sort of the, I mean, there's this, I've often used this pair of uh, things from readings and, and songs that I've heard over the years. When I talk about the whole notion of authenticity, I talk about, uh, there is this book by Phil Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace. And somewhere early in it, he talks about this woman who's, I don't know if it's, if she comes to him or to someone else and he's retelling the story, but apparently she got into this really abysmal drug habit and she was allowing her child to be abused as a way to get money for her drug habit. And I mean, it was just a miserable thing. And at the end of it, the guy who was talking to her didn't know what exactly to say, but he made some comment like, well, you know, have you ever thought about going to the church and trying to get some help? And he said, as soon as he said the word church, you know, this fear stricken look came on her face and she said, uh, the church, why in the world would I go there? Don't you think I feel bad enough about this already? Mm-hmm. And then you contrast that to, Rich Mullins, I got to be a big fan of his after he died, interestingly, but he did this collection of uh, records, songs, that were his view of what the life of Jesus was kind of about. And one of them 
is called um, Homeless Man. And then the main idea is the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man or something like that. But in one place, he, he makes this comment. He says, the whores all seem to love him and the drunks proposed a toast. And so I say to my students, what is it that in the first century made Jesus the kind of person to whom any sinner could come and talk? And the church is the last place where sinners want to come and talk. Something about authenticity and who we really are has broken down when that dichotomy exists. I have no answer for that. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, I know that was rhetorical to some extent. Uh, it's its a shame. I mean, in fact, actually, you know, writing notes down for this episode, I have a quote on you. So we're going to have to spend a lot more time looking like Jesus and less time talking about what we believe about Jesus. Yes. And, you know, how does the church look like Jesus and, you know, the answer that I keep coming back to, and I woefully am, I am, hear me, here's me reveling in my sin for a second here. I am very terrible at doing service. And I think part of it is just stage of life with children at our age. But I'll admit that our family does not do enough service in, in our community uh, in the way that we, we know that we will eventually do. Uh, maybe we just need to get onto it. But serving uh, seems to be the antidote to self-congratulatory worship, I suppose, might be might be the way to our self-congratulatory church habits, because it seems to me that the way that we serve others is indicative of how Christ-like we are. Yeah, I think that's right. The um, when my wife and I moved back to town here, I um, I have been a licensed local pastor before. That's what you could be in the United Methodist Church to be uh, authorized to do all the sacramental stuff if you didn't decide to pursue ordination. So it's a couple of different ways to mm-hmm. be licensed to serve in the church. And we attended a church that was extremely racial. I mean, every kind of diversity you could think of, this particular church had it. And I served in that in a, for a couple of years and was managing a campus downtown that met in our uh, one of our movie theaters. And it's, God has a sense of humor. This That place was a, a porn theater back in the middle 70s. And now, or for the period of time we worked there, it was a church. So after we finished that, we were trying to figure out what sort of, we enjoyed that service-oriented stuff. And so what we did was we founded a ministry with some friends of ours that once a month we go down and have a, a meal and a church service with uh, our homeless or sometimes I say marginally homed friends. I mean, they're not all homeless, but they're they're all on the margins in one way or another. And uh, we've been doing that for three years now. And I, I, what I can say without doubt is that... Uh, it has an impact on you. It begins to change how you think about these things. And I, I often say to people, there are. It's always on a Saturday that we do this. I say there are some Saturday mornings when it's our week to do that. And I wake up and I think I really don't want to go do that today. <laughs> but there's never been a case that I left thinking I wish I hadn't come. It's always a blessing to interact with sisters and brothers. That uh, I mean, it's very easy for us in the you know sort of middle class and upper class church to slide into some sort of version of prosperity gospel, if it is, even if it isn't prosperity gospel as such, we kind of get into this, uh, we deserve what we have and mm-hmm. people who don't have stuff, they don't deserve it, you know, it's their own fault and all that. And when you walk alongside uh, folks who've been through difficulties and these challenges that have thrown them out on the streets, um, it helps you to see just how like we all are as humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's very easy to see. I mean, there, there's this one guy, I won't say his name because who knows, he might listen to this sometime. But uh, I went went down to the, when we were still doing the other church before we did the homeless thing we're doing now, 
he he happened to be there early and I'd talked to him a few times. So I went back, I saw he was sitting in the back reading and I went back to talk to him. And before I started talking, I just kind of glanced at what he was reading and he was reading a book in German. So here's one of our homeless guys in Lexington uh, sitting in our church theater, in the theater that was about to be church, uh, reading a book in German. And the more I got to checking into this guy's background, I mean, he was highly educated. He uh, had a really important position and apparently made a few bad choices that ended up causing him to lose his family and his home and all this stuff. And now he basically lives in a tent on the out on the street somewhere. And, you know, I look at him and I look at myself and I say, you know, I've uh, except those two or three bad choices. You and I are a lot alike. And, and for, in my case, when I made two or three bad choices, I had a sufficient support network to get me through it. Yeah. You know, something you said earlier about finding diversity in a church is is important. I remember when I was in seminary, this was over a decade ago, there was this assignment or question that the class debated uh, or discussed on how racially diverse or how just diverse generally should a church be. And there was a wide variety of opinions, of course, because the seminary that I went to was not a, you know, homogeneous, <laughs> it wasn't a homogeneous uh, group that had a narrowly defined theology and practice that we are all there to just learn more about. We, we all came from various different kinds of denominations and flavors, so to speak. So that, that conversation has stuck with me uh, because yeah. I, you know, there were, there were Korean Christians in that class who were like, well, we should just be able to have a Korean church. And there were people who were African-American Episcopal, Methodist Episcopal, or I forget how there's a, it's pretty old denomination. AME, AME, yeah, AME yeah. African Methodist Episcopal. Yeah. Episcopal. And there were people who were, you know, just came from a conservative white Baptist church. Um, I don't think they had white in their name, but that's could have been. Um, so, you know, how, how diverse can you be and do you have to be diverse? And, you know, and then I have a, you know, I'll ask you a question about handling diversity, but I mean, is it okay for Christians to be like, Hey, we're just going to have our pretty homogeneous, black or Korean or whatever church. Yeah. Well, here's, here's what I would say to that. I would say that there isn't a, uh, it's not like there's a uh, on and off switch you can flip, right? And this, this kind of church here is diverse enough and this one isn't. What I would, I would say it a different way. I would say there are things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus that you won't get if you don't have some degree of diversity. And the more you have of it, the more you'll be, I mean, the fact that we, my wife and I, did that, um, you know, had the experience in the different traditions that we did. They help us to see what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a much richer way than we would have if we hadn't. I mean, you can't understand what folks from different ethnic backgrounds have been through if you don't ever hang out with them, right? If you don't, when when Bobby and I, my, that's my wife's name, when we decide we're, we're looking, where will we plug in? You know, where can we serve here in Lexington? The thing that finally helped me decide is interesting that there were these two movies that I happened to see in the same weekend. One we went to see, and one it was an older movie, but I just happened to watch it on TV. One was uh, The Help, as I recall. The other one was the Matthew McConaughey, oh, ki A Killing Time, or A Time for Killing, something like time that. Time to Kill, yeah. yeah time to go. And so um, what struck me in both those movies was that um, – our African-American sisters and brothers in those movies, when they went to church, they didn't go to hang out. They went because they knew that if they didn't have that, you know, if they didn't 
if they didn't have this worship opportunity together, they just might not make it next week, right? I mean, that's how critical it was to how to their sense of survival. And what I said to my wife after that was, I don't want to go to church anymore where it just feels like this is the, quote, Christian thing to do on Sunday morning. I want to go because I feel like if I'm not there, something critical to my survival I will have missed. I want it to be for me like it was for the characters in that movie. And in that case, we made the conscious decision to go to a church that was very diverse in lots of different ways because we wanted to get that experience of what it meant to these different uh, ethnic backgrounds, what church meant to them, how central it was to who they were, and how could we then learn from them about what church ought to be for me as well. So I'm going to ask you one more question here, and I it has to do with kind of where I started with, you know, libertarians emailing us and saying, you know, I, I don't want to go to a church that doesn't have my same political views. Can you help me? And my answer is mostly pretty much this interview. But I can imagine that because there really are no libertarian churches. I mean, I've heard I have one person whom I know who in the West Coast who says pretty much everybody in his church is a libertarian when I said, well, you're the only one. Um, And, you know, we had a laugh or whatever. So no matter who's listening, it doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum. You're going to go to a church, likely. There's going to have people in it that don't agree with you politically. It's going to have a pastor in it who doesn't agree with you politically. And sometimes we hold our political convictions pretty strongly. Yeah. So I can imagine, you know, Chuck, you and I don't live near each other, but if we were, you know, living in the same area, you know, you and I can end up in the same church and you could be this like diehard Ron Paul supporter and I could be this diehard Elizabeth Warren supporter and we end up in the same small group. How are we going to get along? Well, yeah, it's interesting you asked that. On the book that uh, Mike Slaughter and uh, Robbie Jones and I did together called Hijacked, Mike, who's a pastor of a United Methodist, well, he's retired now, he was pastor of United Methodist Church. One Sunday morning, he just, uh, at the beginning of his service, he said, um, all right, how many folks are in here are Republicans? People held their hands. How many are Democrats? People held their hands. And he just, you know, Green Party, Libertarian, he would just go on down the line, right? And he, and he had like 10 seats across the front of his, uh, at the front of the church. And he would have one from each of those different uh, groups come up. And then he said, I mean, his point was basically, you're living with each other. You probably are in small groups with each other. You don't know the political differences that you have because you're engaged in ministry together. My guess is that uh, if we did that in most churches, we'd be surprised of the constitution of the churches that we already have. I, you know, you and I both feel very strongly about our own political convictions. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of things you and I agree on, a lot of things we disagree on. But I would never think, oh, I couldn't go to Doug Stewart's church because he and I don't agree on these set of things, right? Uh, I would go and minister with you. And then every chance you and I got to argue, you know, we'd have our political arguments on the side. But if we can't get to the place where, I mean, this is the skill that we've lost in the church, or perhaps we never had it. And that is, I always tell a story about a friend of mine who uh, we were both colleagues at Asbury a number of years ago. He's teaching somewhere else. And now I do my, I mostly teach online anymore. But anyway, we would argue about stuff. I mean, I'd go to his office and we would be pounding the table and we'd, no, you're wrong. That can't possibly be. I mean, just very passionate. <laughs> and then we'd kind of get tired and we'd look at each other and say, let's go get a coat and shoot game pool, right? And off we'd go and then we'd talk about basketball and we'd just have a big time together. We've lost the ability to love each other even in the midst of our disagreements, right? Now disagreements mean 
the other guy's stupid, you know, or he's not as enlightened as I am or something like that. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've made our political differences into moral assessments of other people rather than of political assessments. Uh, it's too easy for that to happen. And we in the church, rather than being the ones who fuel it, which I fear we are, we need to be the ones who figure out how to undermine it. I often say to folks, wouldn't it be wonderful if when the church decided they wanted to debate the gay, lesbian issue, they actually brought the best defender of the gay and lesbian position and the best defender of the anti-gay and lesbian position, for lack of a better way to put it. We could put them both up in the church. They could make their presentations. We could ask them questions. We could actually learn from each other. What if the church became a place where we could have those dialogues rather than the place that's known for condemning you if you're not on my particular side of this issue? That's my dream for the church. Can the, could the church dare to become that sort of place? Mm. That is definitely something to aspire to. Chuck, I appreciate the conversation. And uh, of course, you know, I brought you on here because I knew this would be a genuine uh, conversation worth enlightening us to use a word you just <laughs> used. I hope we're all more enlightened after this conversation. So I appreciate you being with me here. Thanks, man. It's an honor. Be glad to do it on any topic. You know, pick something next time it's hard, like snake handling or something like that. Um, I don't really know much about that, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. But <laughs> is that really such a hard issue? Uh, what's that? Snake handling. I mean, that no. is not snake handling, but I mean, like, theologically, that can't be that difficult. <laughs> no, it's just difficult whether you want to do it or not. There was an old joke about a guy who said, uh, you know, he was in a snake handling church, and a guy who wasn't in a snake handling church was making fun of him. And he said, well, if the Lord came right here and stood and said, for you to pick up that snake, would you pick it up? And he said, of course I would, but he's not here. And he didn't tell me to pick up that snake, and I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guarantee you that if we have you on again, Chuck, we will not be talking about snake handling. So uh, and, okay, fair uh, enough. Uh, it will be something more <laughs> substantial, but we can we can end with that. Thanks again. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.